Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in. So today we have a guest. Our guest is Gregory Salmieri. So Greg is a senior scholar of philosophy at the Salem Center at the University of Texas in Austin. Those of you who are around objectivism know him as one of the most prominent objectivist scholars. He has edited the companion to Ayn Rand together with Alan Gothels. And more recently, the book Foundations of a Free Society, which is a book that looks the, philo the political philosophy of Ayn Rand. So, and this is edited with Robert Mayhew. So Greg is interested not only on the philosophy, obviously, but also on the applications of it. And I'm trying to understand society in general and where, where we've been and where we're going from an objectivist point of view, let's say. So this is why today we're going to discuss a topic which is a bit out of the blue, you would say. So we're gonna try to figure out what have been the most important things happening in the last approximately 40 years. So what are the key moments that have influenced where we are going? And when I say we, I mean the United States and the West in general. So we talk about many things like, oh, the rise of the left, uh, postmodernism, or was it 9-11? So we're gonna to try a bit more specifically to see what are the key moments that, if not determined, really influenced where we found ourselves today? And also we have with us, of course, Mark Pellegrino. So Mark is someone who is living this history by being part of it. And he's going to also help us discuss the key moments in the last four decades. And I hope that, again, we're not only recording it, but by recording it, we're going to be able to make history in the future. But first, we need to understand what, what happened. So, Greg, we were part of a workshop, so to speak, that you organized the last weekend. And first of all, can you tell us a bit why is it important for you at this stage in time to take this, in a way, bird's eye view, to, to zoom out a bit and see the last 40 years, the big picture? Well, this really started for me when I was thinking about a companion to Ayn Rand and what chapters we wanted in it and that we wanted the book to be broader than a book on Ayn Rand's politics. It was supposed to, uh, sorry, on her broader than a book just on her philosophy as a philosophical system that, that's timeless, but uh, uh, as a book about you know, what she did as an author, she wrote novels, she wrote essays on, uh, on events of her time. So it was supposed to be a companion to her corpus. And a lot of what she did was write about what was going on, right? She wrote all these topical essays. And so I wanted to, have a chapter in there that was about them. And we tried to get different people to write it and uh, people didn't want to take on the task or, or some did and found they couldn't do it. And John Lewis uh, took it on and he and I were working together on it with me as his editor and he passed away. So it kind of felt to me to finish it. Um, but the what was interesting to me is she definitely had a narrative of the time period she was writing about as she was writing about it. It wasn't just this guy's bad and this guy's good and I could read it off the philosophy abstractly and looking at the person. There was also like, what's happening to the world? What's happening to the culture such that this figure arose now and that he did this now was, it would have been bad anytime he did it, but it was worse now than it would have been 20 years earlier or better now. And so just what people talk about losing the plot when they're looking about at politics or finding the plot. And so I think it's, she had a kind of plot, a kind of causal understanding of what was happening. And that really pervaded her writing about the events of her time. And I don't think many of us thinking about things now from an objectivist perspective have so much of a narrative and have given that much thought to it, or at least 
I thought there wasn't that much going on in the 90s when I kind of came up and was learning this. So I wanted to kind of first get clearer on her sense of the period she lived through. And then that naturally suggests the question of, you know, is her story right? And also like where, how do you bring it or a revised version of it forward to now? Where are we in history? And so, so I've been thinking about that yeah. a lot. And then now we've had the last couple of elections, everybody seem, and what's happened, you know, after them, everybody seems to think it are super important. I do too, are big turning points. Um, but then you want to have that in context. Well, from what to what, what's actually going on here? So gentlemen, shall we go decade by decade or shall we go by, let's say, politics, ethics, epistemology? What are the big developments? Um, I think maybe go by time makes more sense because um, the developments in one area are going to be so related to the developments in another, I think. I don't know that you can separate them. Okay. So we find, let's say we find ourselves at the beginning of this timeline, we're in 1971. So we have, in the previous decade, we've had the civil rights movement, major step in the history of the United States with its goods and its, the things that are not perfect. Then we had the, the Vietnam War, which is huge for two reasons. One is the first big defeat of the United States. Defeat, first of all, at the level of, at the level of, of shall I say, self-esteem, image of the superpower. But also we have a revolt from within the United States against anything that the United States stands for. And uh, there's an interesting poem by the beatnik author uh, Ginsberg, not our Razi, the other Ginsberg, who, who talks about, Ruth I think, the, the, sorry? Ruth Bader, or is there a third? No, the, 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 the other Alan, one, anyway. Basically, take any Ginsberg poem and you will see this disdain for the United States. Disdain when it comes to morality, when it comes to culture, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to foreign policy, everything. And then we, at the beginning of the 70s also, we have the financial, not crisis, but economy slowing down. We have the oil crisis and this is where, this is where we find ourselves. So let's begin there. So could we say that at that point, United States is at a low, they're at the Nadir, or maybe the Nadir is today, and that was just... Anyway, but it, in a way, it reminds us the time that we have now. The, the new left being out in the streets, seemingly winning the narrative, and the United States being at the point where it feels like decline. So let's start from there. Any of you can jump in with any comments you want. Yeah, so one thought is, I, I think we really have to keep that time period and the really troubling events of it and cultural state we were in at that time as context when thinking about what happened since, because arguably we're there or worse right now, we can argue about that. But if we wanna think about that, we certainly were in a better position in the late 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, this kind of thing wasn't happening or wasn't happening as much. So there's some kind of wave or cyclical phenomenon here, right? I don't mean to say it always has to go in a cycle, but it's not like, you know, there's been a trajectory all in one direction since 1776 or 1950 or whatever, you know, time period you want to, to fix on. Um, so I just want to mention a couple of things leading into the period you mentioned. So after World War II, we have the Republicans essentially accept the New Deal, right? So we have a period where there's not going to be any pushing back on the New Deal. Um, the Kennedy administration, at least as Rand sees it, is kind of 
focused on removing ideology from politics so that we're only arguing about particular measures out of context rather than broad principles like freedom or government control. Uh, under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, in addition to getting into um, the Vietnam War, which you mentioned, we have the mostly socialization of American medicine, that is the um, passage of the um, Medicare and also the Kiefer-Harris Amendments to the Food and Drug Act. Um, and you know, England and Canada socialized their medicine, England a little earlier, Canada a little later. Um, so mostly socialized medicine and um, a lot of uh, a real upshot and antitrust uh, persecutions of business. So when Rand comes on the scene, she sees us as kind of cascading towards uh, dictatorship, um, or not cascading, but drifting very quickly in that direction. And um, then you have the 1964 presidential election where you have a, a Republican who's seen as strong and bold in opposition, or as radical anyway, in opposition to um, the Kennedy-Johnson administration. Of course, Kennedy was killed, and that's another important part of the history. But anyway, um, and from Rand's perspective, at least, he has nothing to say. He has no principles to offer. He, he portrays himself as pro-American and anti-communist and so forth, but he doesn't have much to say about what's wrong with what the current administration is doing and what the alternatives are. And from her view, that failure to articulate any alternative to the vision that was coming from the left, uh, he didn't articulate one and he lost in a landslide being perceived as opposed to the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, ushered in this kind of acceleration of the growth of um, the, the mainstreaming of what you might call those anti-American, anti-institution attitudes. And you start to see all the protests on campuses uh, and so forth. So that's how she read that time period. And her read of it was that in the early set, by the early seventies, um, even without having a vision to counteract that, the American people were just kind of freaked out by um, the freakiness of um, the hippies, what happened at the 1968 Democratic Convention, um, um, the governs kind of embrace of new leftist kind of figures or seeming embrace of them, uh, the, the, the kind of weird policy he endorsed of what's now become popular among almost everyone, but uh, which is a minimum basic income, but a minimum basic income that was uh, really pegged to the idea of redistributing wealth. And that was not that much lower than what he thought of as the highest allowable income. So a real kind of egalitarianism. Um, and people reacted against all that. Um, McGovern lost in a landslide to Nixon, who basically no one liked, at least that was her read on that period. So it was not a, a pro-Nixon or pro-conservative or pro-Republican, but just a, this has gone too far. Um, we don't want this. And that created a period where there was now room for an alternative to grow. The brakes were put on the progress the culture was making in, a certain, in that direction. And there was time to articulate a new alternative and to rally behind it. Uh, but from her view, that's, uh, that space got filled up by um, the tying of the alternative, the tying of uh, any kind of individualism or free market to uh, religion. And to Time out, before we go to the new right and the religious right. So we discussed a bit politics. Now let's go to the part of culture. Mm -hmm. so, so Mark, not only from recollections, if you have from the, from, from the service, but being at the center of the culture today, would you think that the counterculture of the 60s indeed set the tempo for the United States from what came after? So this 
in a way, relativism, this just peace, you know, we're all friends and this experimentation and this idea that we're also all countercultural radicals. So no matter if you're a millionaire in Hollywood or if you are a hippie, uh, the cool thing is to be a countercultural, to be against the man. Well, I mean, more than a declarative statement, I think I have I have questions re related to all these observations. Um, it, it seems to me that the '60s marked the birth of the new left, right? And the new the new left took on a different cast. I, I guess I, I, I'm sort of saying this with with not a great deal of knowledge, but wasn't this around the time that uh, Herbert Marcuse wrote uh, "Repressive Tolerance"? And academia began to take on a different cast. It, it, it went from it went from an institution, an institution that passed knowledge on, to an institution that became politically active. And they sort of embraced Maoist, Leninist ideas of what that activism meant, and and the way in which they approached narratives. And repressive tolerance, I think, was one of the sort of. Uh, Keystone uh, elements in that in that advocacy and the, and it framed the argument going forward with respect to how these political, social and academic activists look at the looked at the world and that became a part of our culture then. Now I, I just want to know if I'm right and if this this academic movement is what fueled these things that these these uh, the, the the pragmatism of the right and the further encroachment. Uh, taking advantage of the pragmatism uh, by by principled advancement on the left, if, if this was all fueled by, say, Frankfurt School guys like Marcuse? I'm a little, so I, I think that stuff had to have played a role, but I'm skeptical of the idea that this was new with the new left. So if you look at the leftists of the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, um, the idea that we shouldn't have, uh, we shouldn't, First of all, if you look at Stalin, right, there's no tolerance of free speech there. And if you look at the kind of uh, debates over the Hollywood 10 blacklisted authors and, um, uh, and, and Hollywood types, and you look over um, the rationalizations of that, um, and you look at Marxist newspapers of the time, my sense is you get the same line of, uh, we need to be able to speak, but we, sh it, we don't, it, free speech for, um, for the, um, you know, bourgeois or fascists or capitalists or reactionaries isn't a value or is something we should fight. It's not, again, the consistent thread of everybody who sees themselves as a Marxist or as left of center, but then it's not the consistent thread of everyone who thinks that way after Marcusa either. So that's, um, that idea is, is part of leftist thinking and um, what I, and it is part of leftist thinking for a long time, as is the idea of reconceptualizing or not reconcepting because history is always being reconceptualized, rethought, understood in light of new things. But so the idea of a, a Marxist take on history in terms of class and power structures, and that's as old as Marx, right? Marx was doing that. And there were tons of Marxist historians, maybe most historians were Marxist historians uh, in the first half of the 20th century in American and British universities. Anyway, very many of them were. Certainly by the 40s and 50s, that was the case. So what I see as having changed isn't so much intolerance of competing views or trying to get a certain narrative of history, a kind of uh, narrative of history on which America is a force for oppression. Um, what I see as having changed is 
with from the new left to the old from the old left to the new left is um the the old left was pro-worldly success in a way, right? It was, you know, the USSR is going to outproduce us and outstrip us and they're going to have better technology. And if we move to a communist future, we'll all be rich and uh, you know, have a dominion over the earth. Whereas the new left uh, has given up on that and they think um, we are going to be, yeah, we got, uh, we got Nikos's book on this. Seamless um, plug, everything you want to know about the transition from the old left to the new left, the rise of lifestyle activism by, by yours truly. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so you can tell the story better, but the new left are more hippies tread lightly on the earth. It doesn't matter that we're not gonna have uh, much um, uh, practical success. And then related to that is who these lefts are appealing to as their constituencies that they're trying to rile up. So um, the old left was uh, labor unions, basically, right? It was, you know, the workers are the exploited people. Um, we're going to get the workers together and overthrow the bosses. And uh, and so it was all about a labor unionization. And you still see that uh, in, in some leftists later, but more and more it's um, racial and sexual minorities that are viewed now as the oppressed groups because production is not seen as as noble as it was seen under Marxism. So um, the, the, the important fact to them isn't that these guys are the producers and they're exploited. It's just these guys are on the bottom of the social ladder. And so they're um, looking for whoever they um, is or can be portrayed as in that situation. And so it's um, racial minorities, gays, um, uh, countries that aren't, um, you know, uh, that are victims of colonialism or, or portrayed as such. Can I say something on this? Yeah. So, in a way, the left was always predominantly part of the upper middle or even upper class already in the U in the U.S. even before Second War. But what changed is who is their audience? So their audience is not anymore the working class because the working class now is part of the problem. The working class is these rednecks people who drive fancy big cars and shoot guns and all that stuff. That's not the people we want. The people we want is the people who are like us. So you have a more middle class appeal to the left and the people are now seen as part of the problem, not as part of the solution. The other thing relates to what Mark said about the universities. So yes, they were always in a way dominated by the left, but in a way that was way less visible than today. Let me give you an example. So Berkeley that today would consider the you know, the most radical institution. The first, the person who founded the Department of Sociology of Berkeley and its first chairman was Robert Nisbet. No, Robert Nisbet was a conservative sociologist, a good one, but a, a conservative, one of the very few. It would be completely unimaginable in the 90s or the 2000s or today that Berkeley would have a faculty member, not the chairman, who is a conservative. So indeed, there is this idea that there's this march through the institution by the left, but again, it's not new. It has been there forever. By the way, I think an idea, and Razi can text me, can write in the chat if he agrees. Maybe we could do this decade by decade per week because there's no chance we are 20 something minutes in and we're already in the beginning of the 70s. There's no chance we're going to get to 2021. So Razi, if you are on board, maybe we can discuss doing this, let's say a weekly thing, of course, or whenever Greg is available. Sure, with a smiley. That's very, 
That's very I rare. Know, I That's do it every week, but I'm happy to come back and talk about other decades that we don't get to. Okay, hear. yeah, not every week, but at some point. Okay, so okay, so how about then this? I think that in the 70s, the most big shift is the rise of the environmental, politically, the rise of the environmental narrative. And it was also mentioned in the workshop we were this weekend. And it's important for two reasons. A, because it, it signifies this monumental shift in the left, that any, it's not anymore the champion of industrial production, and it's not anymore that capitalism is bad because it produces a lot. Now we move the goalpost completely. Now capitalism is bad. Sorry, not because it, it produces not enough. Now capitalism is bad because it produces too much. But also the unknown, let's say the unknown fact is that at the beginning of the environmentalism, it is engulfed and it is, let's say, sanctioned by the right. So the conservation movement in the United States is predominantly right conservative before the 60s. If you see the history of the earth first, of radical environmentalism, you can find many quote rednecks in it. And who is the first person who sanctioned and celebrated Earth Day in the United States? Of course, Nixon. So today you're gonna find many conservatives say, uh, watermelons, uh, the greens say uh, they're green on the outside and red on the inside. The right was also confident in jumping on the environmental narrative, particularly because they haven't got much else. So the, the right hasn't got- in the UK, right? Sorry? Thatcher in England also, right? Thatcher in England, yes. So Thatcher had, so based which conservative you ask, the green conservative is going to tell you, no, Thatcher was a big proponent of, envi of the environment, but more fancy, like uh, cool conservative kids, they are going to tell you, no, no, Thatcher was already back then for, against climate change. Okay, so what else is it easier to see in the 70s? Shall we say that the Iran crisis, it's 79, right? Yeah. So, the, so we go from Vietnam, then we go to Carter, to, uh, to Nixon. So defeat in Vietnam continues. Uh, the disaster in Vietnam spreads out. Then we have Cambodia. Then we have also the uh, Laos. So the defeat is not only a defeat in Vietnam, but leads to the disaster in Cambodia. And at the same time, we have one of the most important political developments of these 40 years, which is the rise of political Islam. And this is where is this more evident in Iran? And there in Iran, we have the unthinkable, a new regime, a revolutionary regime, and by the way, the Iranian revolution was a true revolution in terms of if you see the percentage of population who participates, it was very enthusiastically endorsed. So it was a real revolution. And we see the unthinkable keeping hostages of the superpower for many months. So why is this so important? It was brought by many people during that workshop. And I think by you. Yeah, I, I would mention one other thing uh, or two other things in the 70s before we get to this. Um, so one is, I already mentioned this, uh, important in Rand's view, the public's reaction against the, what it saw as growing leftism in the electing of Nixon twice. And then also Watergate, which was a really, um, you know, the first time a president was forced to resign basically or pushed into resigning, almost impeached, a real scandal, a real crisis of confidence in, in leadership. Um, but yeah, I think that the Iranian revolution is bigger in its historical tales than, than, um, than Watergate. Um, so it's the beginning of a new enemy, 
a new enemy we don't know how to fight. Um, Carter's um, response to it is lame. I mean, doesn't do anything. Uh, Reagan is sort of seen as a tough guy and talks a little bit tougher, but also, you know, doesn't really do much there. And then is engaged in selling arms to the Iranians, right? Later, covertly in exchange for hostages. The um, contrasts. So, so for people who don't know this, this was a deal of so Reagan wanted to support the anti-left guerrillas in Nicaragua. The contrast. So because he cannot directly support the Contras, he goes through Iran, which Iran only some years ago was holding hostages, the, the personnel of the U.S. embassy, some of the personnel, and it's, it's, it's rallying, it's a, a rallying chant, how it's called, was death to America. So Khomeini is still in charge when we have the Iran-Contras scandal. So go on. Yeah, so there's uh, Reagan, in effect, covertly supporting this regime or having them as part of his, anyway, the Reagan administration, exactly how it worked out is, you know, still a little murky. Um, but it was some kind of administration policy to work with the Iranian Sabrosa. Um, and it was a real blow, particularly in the, in the, in the uh, wake of Vietnam, it seemed like we couldn't accomplish anything, right? Um, and like we were on the run in the world and like we were weak. And I think some of over the late over the in some ways starting in the 70s and in some ways starting in the 80s, I think we start to see a revival of a feeling like America is a country that can do things and like America is good. Um, the people who who have this narrative of America as a horrible, evil country, you know, they're still there. Um, but they're sort of marginalized culturally. And the fact of our defeat in Vietnam and our um, basically unassertiveness in the face of the hostage crisis remains still there. But, you know, we have some minor military victories in Granada and so forth. We have Reagan with assertive rhetoric against the, the Russians. We have uh, in the 90s, the Berlin Wall comes down. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, communism falls, right? And now we're the world's only superpower. There's the first um, Iraq war where um, the American military seems very, very mighty, especially as compared to a military using Soviet uh, weapons. And um, so on the foreign policy strength, ability pr to project strength abroad, America starts looking much more assertive. And you get a kind of deregulatory push in a lot of industries, energy, transportation, to some minor extent finance in the 70s, something that's really decried by uh, the current leftist narrative of what happened. But one result, it seems of that, is a booming economy in America, and in particular, um, the ability of Silicon Valley to really blow up, uh, the ability of the tech industry to really um, become commercialized and become huge in America. And then at the same time, or around the same time, late 70s, you have um, increased freedom, the kind of giving up of communism, basically, in uh, China. China still is an authoritarian, awful government, but they're trying to have market economies and so forth after Mao. Uh, and India is also becoming more capitalistic and these places becoming manufacturing hubs, people getting lifted out of poverty, the world economy globalizing, uh, which is a real move towards capitalism. Um, 
and uh, and these things, despite being often um, stated as bad for America or bad for American workers uh, by leftists at the time and rightists now, are um, I think keep America um, strong economically during this period and um, create a real rise in standard of living, or at least a preventing of our standard of living from becoming depressed? Right, okay, I've asked too many questions. So Mark, the, as they say in court drama, the witness is yours. <laughs> I don't know what to make of any of this. I just, I, what, I, what I get from this picture is this, this undulating cycle of two sides who, one side in particular, the right doesn't quite know what it's doing, but uh, of a back and forth struggle where periodically one side has ascendancy and the other side, and then the other side sort of rises up. I don't get a, I don't, I'm not getting a coherent sense of what intellectual, uh, what, what, what intellectual things are happening. What, what, what's the, what's the spirit of the moment that's animating this sort of one crisis after another that's be, that's peppered by successes. It, it seems to me that, it seems to me that, um, after after years of being worn down by 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 progressives and Marxists, so to speak, in the institutions, the right sort of split itself off from principle. They they politically speaking, they just divorced themselves from principle. And I, I might be jumping ahead to where we stand now, perhaps. And and the left's cognizance of the failure of, of, of Marxism and, and their and their resultant uh, uh, rebellion in post postmodernism sort of gives gives us this perfect storm of of anti-intellectualism I, I, you know what I'm saying yeah this seems to predominate today but I, I'm, I'm not I'm not quite getting the picture of what what all these so one, losses and successes amount to, to be one thing that you would expect to happen um, if you want to zoom out even from where we are, right? Uh, and I think zooming out means zooming out past a contrast between right and left, and also means zooming out between past a contrast between um, this decade and that, you know, um, at the level of, you know, the 70s versus 80s or something. There's a kind, we're a country that was founded on a pro-reason, pro-individual ideology. That pro and that's baked into our basic constitution, our laws with all sorts of contradictions and compromises and problems, some of which got better and some of which got worse, but basically uh, a society that's for the individual's pursuit of his own happiness and voluntary exchanges in, uh, you know, to facilitate that and laws that are meant to make that possible. And that created, um, that's what created an industrial revolution. It's what created a rising standard of living. It's what creates a, a pressure um, for the correction of the various forms of unfreedom that we had, um, uh, uh, inequality under the law and so forth, the worst of which being slavery, but there having been others as well. Um, but all of those ideas require as their basis, right? This is Ayn Rand's broad picture of history, um, valuing of reason, and valuing of the self. And these are two kind of enlightenment ideas that were not well defended in the enlightenment and really came under attack after it. So that you have a kind of um, 
mysticism and altruism and collectivism as an axis of ideas that are leading to the undoing and the unraveling of America and of the American influence abroad that's led to the freedom, greater freedom in other countries. But that kind of thing doesn't happen all at once and doesn't happen overnight, right? You have the tremendous success of American capitalism and American freedom leading to a kind of cultural dominance that leads to it being spreaded and adopted abroad, Japan, China, India. Um, and this is kind of continuing. At the same time as you have its foundations being undermined and you have people not having self-conscious ideas that can support or defend what makes America um, America, what makes America great, but who have a feeling of life that's kind of attuned to Americanism, both in America and in everywhere in the world where they're kind of ingesting American culture. Um, so what happens? You have the ideas, the explicit ideas corroding things, leading to movements and political movements that lead to catastrophe. But then you have a kind of break on that and people's sense of this isn't us. This isn't what we can be. We can't be Kent State and people rioting in the streets. And that's not America. We have to push back against that but not knowing how to push back against it. So when they see some kind of obvious juggernaut of awfulness, they're, no, we don't want that. But then they don't have an alternative. So there's something that puts on the brakes and leads to some steps back from the unraveling. And think of the kind of excesses of the hippie movement as having done that. You could also think of the excesses of um, corruption in the Nixon administration and in Watergate getting exposed as having done that. We don't want the executive to be so powerful. We want more checks checks on it, right? So it's not, it's just left. In, in many different factors, the culture has been getting um, less intellectual, less pro-freedom, but then some horror happens as a result of that and people push back against that. But the put and the pushback is often good, but it's not good enough to get us really going in the opposite direction fully. And so you can think of what's happening in, in different areas of life in the 70s and in the 80s as a kind of retrenchment towards Americanism, but kind of inarticulately. And, but it's enough that things are getting better um, and there's, a, there's already positive momentum in lots of areas. So a little bit more freedom or a little bit of a um, pullback on the, the brakes, uh, on the anti-freedom forces, can let the the you know entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and um, and um, all, all the small business people all across the country and everything else get a lot done, inspire a lot of people in China, uh, inspire a lot of people in India, and make life a lot better for a lot of people. But these anti-enlightenment forces remain in the culture, and they remain narrowing, whittling us down, and, and weakening us. And then when something happens that's then a shock to us and makes us really question whether we're good and powerful and right. They can now come out of the woodwork again and become more and more with a renewed virulence. And mm -hmm. I think um, the aftermath of 9-11 was the next thing that gave those kind of cultural forces a opportunity to reassert themselves. 9 before we go to, to that, actually, we haven't got time, but we do have a super chat, which I want to address. By the way, the, the poem about the America's disdain for itself is by Allen Ginsberg with S, and it's not like our Razi, and it's called America, and it's disgusting, but it's the most, like, if the 1960s were a poem, it would be America by Ginsberg. Anyway, here's a super chat question. Thank you very much, by the way, 
to our viewer who, uh, who asked the super chat. So the question is about what the term narrative narrative means, because it's a term I use often, maybe other people use often as well. So very quickly, the way I understand narrative is what is the story we tell and the story that gets dominant to explain a situation. Let me give you an example. In 2008, we have the financial crisis. One narrative, which means one story, one way of understanding it is that it was, quote, neoliberalism, greed and deregulation. And unfortunately, that's the narrative that wins. An alternative narrative would be that, no, this was state intervention and all that stuff. So narrative means what is the story that prevails in the minds of the people in the public sphere? And there are contrasting narratives. So we have our narrative, doesn't win. But usually narrative, we talk about the prevailing story that wins. Okay, so outro. So, okay, today was a bit in a good way disorganized in terms that we didn't finish. And, uh, but we will, we will continue at some other week. So things to notice, we, first of all, we continue in Clubhouse where Greg is quite active from what I, from what I see. So if you want to ask questions about ideally that period, but any other burning questions you want, uh, we, you, you can join us in Clubhouse. So Razi also says, okay, and also one more thing, if you appreciate the work that we are doing and we are, do we are doing more stuff, mo more and more stuff, consider becoming a member of the Enrad Center UK. So you get access to programs and events that are not open to the general public, mostly diving deep into philosophy, diving, diving deep into the Leonard Peak of courses, uh, the Productivity Hub, you get access to our many WhatsApp groups where we discuss everything from fitness to sports, politics, general stuff, a lot of stuff, art, cool. And I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting more and more things. And at, and apparently there's more stuff. And at 9 p.m. UK time today on Clubhouse, Zoe and Razi uh, discuss something. We, so Raz discussed with Zoe Swimpel from The Telegraph, I think Stackhouse, which is one of the new big things, let's say, on the, on the sphere of ideas. Substack, yes. Okay, so too much information for people to chew. The Crow epistemology might kick in. If you want to know what the Crow epistemology is, grow, join our Saturday sessions or read Ayn Rand and the books that Greg has edited, particularly the companion to Ayn Rand. Okay, we move to Clubhouse. Many thanks, Mark. Many thanks, Greg. Many thanks to our viewers. Thanks, We're going to see you all there in a minute. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Clubhouse.